Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to helping business owners prepare for exit so you can maximize value and exit on your terms. This is the Exit Insight Podcast presented by Succession Plus. I'm Daryl Bates-Brownsort and today I'm talking to Jer- Jerome Fogel and Jerome's a lawyer from Fogel and Patamianos based in Los Angeles. Hey, welcome Jerome and uh, thanks for joining me today. Daryl, thank you so much for having, on, having me on. I'm really glad to be here. That's great. Now, look, I know it's an early morning for you, so I'll try not to hit you with uh, too many you know, <laughs> questions. But, hey, Jerome, why don't you give us a little bit of a background about Because I remember when we had our, our preliminary conversation, you, there's, a, there's a really interesting backstory for you and how you, you got into doing the commercial work you do uh, on the legal side. So can you just frame it up for us and uh, sure, use that as a starting point? Sure, sure. So um, one, of the, one of the great things that I've been able to do is represent all different types of companies and individuals and businesses. And one of the clients that we first started working with, this is about five years ago, um, really came to us with some corporate needs, some intellectual property needs. And I began to assemble really this kind of power team to help our client. And over those five years, we developed a process for helping clients 70 factor process that we developed. And over those five years, actually, the client just exited in um, last, uh, last quarter, uh, sorry, end, end of 2021, the client had an exit. And, and since that time, we've built a really strong mergers and acquisitions practice. We built, we've built a venture capital formation practice. We've built a capital raising practice. And so, we work with anywhere from companies from early stage, no valuation up to half a billion valuation. And, um, we, and we work all across the U.S., mostly in California and Texas. Okay. So given that, I'm guessing you've seen some things done really well and some uh, right. and, and owners who have perhaps could, you, could benefit from some help, shall we say. Right. Right. Yeah, there's, you know, I think that you've, a lot of the owners are doing these things for the first time, whereas people like yourself and, and, and mine have seen this a number of times. So um, sometimes you get the, you get, you get clients who, who know what they're doing, but most often not, they, they need help. Yeah. And, and yeah, we, we work in the, the mid market type of sector where most business owners in that sector, they're only ever going to do one exit in, in their, in their lifetime. And, and that's what, that's why we started this podcast. We want to help business owners exit on their terms by bringing in gurus like yourself to share the tips and to help business owners who are going through for the first time, help them be best prepared because the journey going through an exit is often longer and more arduous and more stressful and painful than they ever thought possible. So that's why we're here, Jerome. So so what we want to do is unpack your heading and and get some tips from Mm -hmm. you um, to to share with business owners. So um, Mm -hmm. like, have you got, look, this is going to be really um, out of the blue, but have you got, is there something on the top of your mind and going, hey, here's the top tip. I really really wish business owners knew this going into the process. Mm Yeah, I, I here's 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 really the I think the top tip. This is if you're if you're being approached by an institutional buyer, so a private equity group, 
a public company, you know, Fortune 500, so, somebody sophisticated. What you need to do as a seller is inspire confidence in your company. And the way you do that is you have all your ducks in a row from corporate governance, from conception to present. You have, you know, you, you're ready for third party consents. You, you have a, a very coherent story of your company. The numbers match up and make sense. You do all the things to help the boxes check so that when the institutional buyer rolls up all this data to the top, because they will, it'll check the boxes and they'll inspire confidence and move forward with the deal. I think what I see with sellers is um, they sometimes play a little loosey-goosey in the sense of they think, oh, well, because what the, the structure I needed to run my business is good enough for the buyer, but that's not the case. You may run your business away one way, but in order for the buyer to purchase your company, it has to be ready a certain way, institutionally ready. So I think that's the big thing. Biggest tip I have for sellers is your company needs to be ready for an institutional buyer. And that's different from your company being profitable and being made for you to grow it. Right. So, so you've gone straight for the jugular of um, exit planning and gone, right. let's, Let's set up our business because the most desirable thing, right, for any business owner is to go, I really want to build this business so that it is, you know, it's that magical strategic exit and, and, and a strategic acquire. Right. Which is not a competitor because a competitor only ever wants to buy your client base and a couple of your staff, really. Right. They're not, they're not interested in the intangible assets and, and the extra, you know, things that you build in your business. So so let's, let's make it attractive to a strategic acquirer. And what you're telling us right. is – you really need to think about the risks to them and how they think in advance, how they're thinking about if they're going to acquire a business, they, they have expectations of, of what's in place. And, you know, so start thinking from their perspective and, and seeing if you can have a look from their perspective at your business and what all the risks are. And if you can address those, then, then that puts you in a pretty good position. Is, is that Abs kind of what Absolutely. Absolutely. You see it from their eyes and their yeah. eyes are different. Um, oftentimes the people in institutional that are institutional, their jobs are on the line. If they, if they, you know, push the button on the wrong company, they might lose their job versus yeah. an owner who's calling the shots. So you just, you have to think about, they're thinking about their jobs as this stuff is rolling up. And so you you want to you want to inspire confidence every step of the process. Um, uh, you don't you don't what what I heard from one law firm that does billion dollar deals is you don't want it to be a circus you know in the in the sale process. You, you want to give them confidence, absolutely. So 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 given that, what are some of the mistakes you see sellers? you know, um, mm -hmm. I guess doing repeatedly when, when they're going through the, the exit journey and, and they may have some M&A advisors working with them. What, what are the mistakes, the common mistakes? Sure. Well, I, I think too, I, I have a ton of um, compassion and understanding because to get to this point, you have been a scrappy entrepreneur 
you've begun to you've begun to put management and executives in place and your company really is a, a, an, an amazing success story but the skills that made you a successful entrepreneur are not necessarily the same skills that'll successfully sell your company what do i mean by that well when you're an entrepreneur you're taking risks you're kicking out dust you're making things happen but really what the buyer is going to do is put you in this process what they call a process and they're going to want your whole company broken down into bits and pieces in a data room so they can analyze it and yep. so um what happens so that's a whole different thinking and so i think the the number one thing is that you've got to be able to run the business and do the process at the same time because what happens is something called performance drag where companies will get so focused on the M&A deal and they'll let the performance drag and then if that deal doesn't close then your numbers are down for the next quarter or two so number 1 you've got a somebody running the business and somebody running the process and ideally you've got people that can help you with that and you get involved as the business owner when needed or the CEO but so number 1 you've got to have people doing both keep your eye on the ball continuing to grow the business but then also um you have somebody that's helping with the process. That's like the, the, the number one thing. Probably, I would say number two is you have to have a really good advisor team around you, investment banker, CPA, accountant, lawyer, so that they can help you shepherd this deal through. Um, I, I see some business owners who try to do DIY, do it yourself. I even, I had a company that was buying a car out from a public company and you know the, the the CFO wanted to run the deal himself, and you know it's it only works to a certain extent, you know. So you really need advisors in, in in the team. So so even if you've got a CFO in your in your business, you're probably worth looking at getting an interim CFO in just to focus on the deal. Well, I'm not. I would well maybe, but I'm I'm just saying that even if you have a CFO, you you want to have an outside accounting team that's looking at the tax issues <clears throat> that deals with M&A on a, on a constant basis. I think s CFOs are great, but you want somebody who all they do day in and day out is do M&A and do gap and non-gap definitions and going through the APA and the terms. And, <clears throat> you know, you want somebody that specializes in this to, to be on the team. You want a specialist more so than a generalist sometimes. And you want the CFO involved, but you don't want them running the deal and not having any outside advisors. Yeah, absolutely. And especially like if we've got a one one bite at this, if if we're if we're as the owner, the founder of, of the business getting distracted by the deal and that's taken our eyes off the ball of the business, um, maintaining its growth and, and its financial performance. Yeah, there, there's two red flags there or two potential risks. One is that the business is too dependent on my involvement in operations and keeping the business running. And, and two is that, as you say, if the, if the, if we're, if the, if the deal goes down, then, then my performance, my financial performance is, is down for, for two or three quarters. And that set things back uh, another six or 12 months. That's a great point because um, the valuation is going to be based on trailing 12 months, essentially. 
And that's where the multiple is going to be derived out of. And so if you go down a quarter or two, you're resetting the value again. And then to your other point, which is really good, you know, uh, buyers are going to look at the management team. Now, it depends. I mean, if it's a if it's a platform company that is buying this and they're doing an add on, it may be a little different. But but they they do want to buy the management team and they don't want if the CEO, if the company is so reliant on the CEO, that's a problem, right? Um, they, they want a company that has systems in place that can grow and not to, it's not dependent on a genius with a thousand helpers. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay. So what are some of the things that buyers look for? Um, that, that, you know, just mm. some things there that buyers, especially these strategic buyers are looking for that, mm. that founders or owners just haven't considered they, they've neglected and, and, you know, haven't often haven't got in place. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the first things is in terms of the intellectual property, you have to look at the perspective of the buyer. The buyer is going to have an IP team that's going to look at how do we tear down your patents? How do we blow up your trademarks? They're going to look to poke holes in all these things. And so um, it's really important to have somebody with an eye for intellectual property to put the buyer hat on. And before you go to market saying, okay, looking at your IP portfolio, what do we need, what do we need to do to protect this portfolio, whether national or international in order so that this I, that we can't tear down the patent or we can't circumvent the trademarks Whatever it is, you you need somebody with an IPI to look at that with a totally different angle. I'll give you an example. Uh, we had a client that was trying to get a patent for years, six or seven years. It was a really important patent. Um, our our one of our attorneys came in within a year, within a year, a year and a half, had that patent um, re- registered with the United States Patent Trademark Office, but also built a family of patents around that and really protected um, protected this client. And when the client uh, went to sale, that the IP never came up as an issue. The, the buyer never once said, oh, we're concerned about your patent. We've read through the prior art. There, not one question was brought up. But I can guarantee you the sophisticated um, you know, the sophisticated buyer wants a competitive advantage and they're going to look with a magnifying glass and a fine tooth comb through all of the IP. So I would say number one is, you know, having a having a um, expert eye on the IP. Um, the number two thing is you you really need a very clean um, a very clean ownership cap table corporate governance structure. What I mean by that is a buyer wants to know that they're buying the company unencumbered. And yeah. if you have all these oral and other deals floating around, um, it, it will concern the buyer, especially if corporate governance isn't locked up. The third thing, and this is probably the biggest thing, is something called third-party consents. The first thing an institutional buyer is going to ask in the first meeting is 
they're going to try to figure out what are the third party consents to the deals, meaning do banks need to sign off on this deal? Are there certain um, key vendors or critical relationship? Are there government um, consents that are needed? Because they know that third party consents are the most difficult because the third party has no horse in the race. They don't have the incentive and the sense of urgency that the seller and the buyer do to get the deal done. So the really strategic buyer is going to nail down what are the third party consents and they want to get those addressed. And sometimes a deal will not close if the third party consents are, are not in place. So you need to address those very early. So Jerome, th that sounds critical. Is it, is it, can you spell that out a bit more? Like, like, are we talking debt in place? You know, maybe maybe there's a covenant on, on the owner's got his, his property. Yeah. And some examples there? So, so an example here, let's say, hmm. let's say the buyer has, sorry, the, the seller has a line of credit. Um, well, in order for the buyer, the seller to, the, and because there's a line of credit, there is a basically what's called a um, a UCC Uniform Commercial Code security interest in probably the inventory or other property. So that lien needs to get released before the the buyer can buy the company. Yep. So in order to get the lien released, you need to get a letter, basically from the bank stating that either the lien is released or that upon you know payment of x dollars and this the lien will be released in a promissory letter so they want that in writing a second thing would be a government consent if the company is big enough and you know this administration's been more active in antitrust you could have a potential antitrust issue and so um you need to get the antitrust write off if this is happening this is happening right now in um in the US there's a there's there's a couple of deals that are going on right now where essentially um I think it's the Kroger I believe it's the Kroger Albertsons where they're essentially the antitrust office is saying no we're not going to let this deal go through so they have to have to fight this so that's that's a bigger one um but the basically issues like that where the deal can't close unless there's a consent from a third party so but for most antitrust, not going to be a big issue for most mid-market sort of businesses selling. Mm -hmm. selling businesses. So, okay, so we've 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 prepared well in advance. We've we've looked at all our debt structures. We've we've talked to our third parties. We've negotiated mm -hmm. and, and and you know planned to make sure that that's not going to be an issue. Um, what role should the founders play? Because um, when it comes to negotiating on, on, on the deal, because you, you know, it's their life's work, they feel they know their business better than anyone. They feel potentially that they know the value. Um, yeah, from a from a negotiation perspective, how, what, what are your thoughts on how that rolls out? Yeah, I I, I think that the the bigger the deal is, I think the further removed the C the CEO uh, becomes <clears throat> in some of the negotiations. And what I mean by that is if, you know, if it's a solo, if it's a solo business owner with a s small team, if any team, 
he's probably going to be negotiating a deal. If it's a, you know, hundred, $200 million company that's, you know, s selling in the mid market range, um, you know, you've, you've got an investment banker basically negotiating the deal um, and going to have some sophisticated analysis and numbers. And so I think at that point, you know, you really let the, the bankers um, negotiate the pricing deals and the attorneys negotiate the finer points, the reps and warranties and the asset purchase and other agreements. So that said, what I tell every seller is, I this is your life's work. I want you to take an afternoon off, and I want you to read the asset purchase agreement, the stock purchase agreement, whatever it is. Even if you don't understand it all, I want you to read it. Because you know what? You might see something that we don't see, or you might catch something or understand something that we don't. And I, we want you to at least know what's in there. And I think that is a that is something where I, you do want them involved and you want them to understand what's going on. But, um, but like I said, the bigger the deal is, the really less, the, the more removed the CEO will be from that, from that negotiating process. Okay. And so the bigger the deal, yeah, the more likely that the CEO founder is going to be out of it. But what about on those sort of you know smaller end of you know the smaller side of mid market uh, the you know where there's one or two owners that build it up over thirty years they feel a little more attached you know and they, mm -hmm. they see someone in going in and 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 negotiating and uh, you know perhaps they they feel that they can talk the the buyer up or you know or just because they're personally attached to it and and you yeah. know, they may start taking offense and getting you know personally offended or or maybe even concerned that they feel that the deal's going to drop out and and just wanting yeah. to fear in in the buying process just because you know they're, they're founders and they like to meddle let's face it <laughs> so um yeah because you know entrepreneurs can always do everything better uh but but this is something they haven't done before, and and, and this uh, yeah. is really important to their business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought you were going to say, you know, my my tip is, you know, go and take an afternoon off while we do the job. <laughs> but <laughs> what's your advice? What's your experience well, when, when owners want to meddle and get in the way of you? Yeah, and I think my 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 point with that is, I, I really want the owners to focus on the business. Um. And I, I want them to be more hands off because they do get attached and there's feelings involved. And that's why, you know, soccer players, football, foot, American football players, they have agents negotiating their deals, even from the, yeah. from the, you know, smallest to the top. They, because that person is going to be more objective and going to be able to interface more effectively. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that, Again, this is the first time the entrepreneur is doing this, usually, and you leave it to experts who do this day in and day out, and they're going to probably get a better deal for you. And they can take some of the blows, and they'll be able to take some of the things that may be said um, in a way that they wouldn't get offended, and they'd be able to focus on the deal, whereas an owner might get hurt if somebody talks of something about the business and lowers the value. And, you know, you just... You just have somebody that's professional, professionally does this for a living, negotiating the terms for you. And as a CEO, you get involved 
if something were to happen and <clears throat> you know you have the relational equity with the buyer that you've shook their hand and looked them in the eye yeah you get involved but i really want the ceo just focusing on the business and well obviously you discussed with the investment banker and the attorneys the deal that you that's being negotiated and you know you guys you'll talk about it and you make the final decision but in terms of the lead negotiating leave that to the professionals even e even <clears throat> if it's a smaller company leave it to the professionals don't get sidetracked with this because it's this is going to take you off the ball of the business and you're not going to do as good of a job keep, keep the business rolling let these guys do it and i guess what a lot of business owners out there are, you know the question in their mind at the moment is is how much of the negotiation is is tactical how much are they are the negotiations i guess a bit of a game and being gamified and you know a bit of a dance if you like um as opposed to just a yeah here's my offer that's what we think yeah, I, I think a, a really good investment banker is going to get a is going to get the goal is to get a number of buyers to the table to get a competitive bidding situation. And so there's really two things you're negotiating. One is the sale price and two. And this is important now because the cost of money is is higher. How much of the sale is upfront in cash and how much is going to be an earnout due to a value evaluation gap you may have or a financing gap um how much it can be financed right so i think those are the main two things you need to negotiate so a good investment banker is going to get a wide range of buyers get a competitive bidding process and then help you select okay which buyer lines up with what your goals are whether it's the money the legacy the people in the company the mission of whatever it is Find the right buyer. And then now it's negotiating, well, how much of this is going to be cash versus earnout? And the investment banker is going to have, and the lawyer will have the data to help make those arguments. Whereas the, you know, the seller doesn't have really the context to understand how to negotiate that part of the deal. Okay. Okay. So what about the, how much influence does it, does it play in the, in the, the deal formation with, um, I guess, age and, and risk profile related to age of the seller. Does, does various risk profiles or perception of risk uh, affect things or influence things? A lot? Sure. Sure. So the way I, the way I um, kind of look at these things is I, I try to really simplify it for, for a buyer. I, I kind of tell them, you know, because you've got you've got some buyers who are cowboys. I mean, some buyers, some entrepreneurs who are just total cowboys and want to take all the risk in the world. And then you've got some entrepreneurs who want to read every document and color code everything and comment and go through every detail. So you kind of have a really wide spectrum. And so um, the way I break it down is I, I talk about red light, yellow light, green light. Right. And I just say, hey, OK, you know. A, a red light means, <clears throat> hey, there's some serious red flags about this deal. And, um, you know, Jerome, you need to really proceed with caution. And I'm not really sure about this deal or this company. A yellow light is, you know, not really sure if this is the right fit. Maybe the buyer maybe doesn't really understand the business as well as they should. You know, the offer might look good on the surface, but there's a big earnout or whatnot, like yellow light. Green light is, 
there's tons of fit. I like the buyer. I think this is a go. Make the deal happen. And so on that spectrum, it's really sort of moving, helping the buyer, number one, understand how they feel about it. But then number two, help them understand, do they have this deal in the right category? Because sometimes a buyer might think it's a green light when it should be a yellow or a red. And so it's my job to help them under, help understand where they're coming from, but then also help them put it in the right category so we're all on the same page. Because we've seen, you and I, have, Daryl, we've seen more deals. We can tell this deal, hey, this buyer maybe is a real estate fund. They maybe know nothing about the consumer product industry and they're getting into a new deal. Well, likely this is a yellow red light situation because when they start to do due diligence, they're not going to understand how the business operates. Whereas a strategic who's doing, let's say, an add-on acquisition perfectly understands what the, what the, this market is and will be able to take advantage. Okay. So, Jerome, where have we got to in our conversation? The first thing I think if I'm going to re-summarize re, um, is, first one is prepare your business in advance. Once you've prepared your business, you need to think about your business and how, how a potential buyer or acquirer might be looking at your business and try and assess the risks from their perspective and what will put them off you know, proceeding with your business. Surround yourself. The next point that you shared was about surrounding yourself with the right sort of advisors you know, and CFOs and, and, and you know, legal and all the right sort of people who specialize in M&A and are doing this every day, especially if, if it's your first rodeo um, and trying to do things. Don't be cute. You know, leave the negotiation. You know, frame up things with your advisors and go, this is what you want. This is... These are go, no-go gauges. So here, here's your planning. Here's what you do and don't want to do. Have a risk management framework for, for assessing so that it's not just gut feel. So that way you can qualify and clarify what, what the buyers are thinking because you've got some sort of checklist and questionnaire. So you're, you're putting them through due diligence as much as they're putting you through due diligence. Um, I think that's pretty much what we covered. It's a great and, summary. Yeah. <laughs> and and you know let's you know the, the more we plan and prepare these things you know yeah oh and the other big one that you you mentioned that how could i forget this one is is if you need any third party consent you know this is part of looking through the buyer's lens and and what the buyer's risks are if there's any third party consent make sure you've got that risk addressed well up front and the other one you, you've covered so much ground jerome the other one was all about your <laughs> ip Make sure that any IP and intellectual property, and I think you've even mentioned, or this may have been in our pre-conversation, right down to images on your website. Make That's sure right. that there's no issues relating to those. You've got full license to use those, assuming they're third-party images and, and, and not your own. But your IP, make sure that you've got that tucked away and so, so that it's so well protected and secured and, and neat and tidy that, that no one's even going to raise questions about it. That's right. So that's, I think that's everything. And, and while that's fresh in your mind, what, what's from your perspective, Jerome, what, what's the key message that you would love by our buyers? The key message that you would love listeners to take away from our conversation? I think that the, the, the takeaway is you've, if you're a seller, you've put all this time and energy into building your business. You've done a fantastic job. To get to this point, you're in the top, you know, one percent of one percent of companies 
Yeah, give yourself uh, now, a Yeah, yeah, give yourself that. Now the next phase, it's a totally different endeavor, different from building your business. And um, so, but there is a process and there is a way to do this. And if you follow these steps, and these are just some of the steps, but if you follow these steps, you are going to have a successful exit. I can promise you that. So there, there is a way forward. There is a path forward to an exit. Absolutely. Well, we've got 21 steps that we follow. I'm sure you would uh, have a few more of your own. But you know, what the, the consistent message I'm hearing is planning and preparation. And uh, you know, my dad was in the army and, he, army and he taught me that you know proper planning prevents poor performance. Uh, but when he shared it with me, there are a few more P's in there, which I'll leave to your imagination. <laughs> no, I, I think uh, I think there's a Navy SEAL saying, Navy SEAL um, saying that says, um, um, "We don't rise to the occasion; we sink to our level of preparation," which is probably about what your dad was saying. More military terms, and I'm sure they're they're just as colourful. Hey, Jerome, look, uh, thanks for sharing your, your insights with us today. It, it's been enlightening. I've learned a few things, been reminded of a few things. I appreciate you sharing uh, on the Exit Insights podcast. Thank you so much, Daryl, for having me. Thank you to your listeners for tuning in. 